Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm, uh, well, I'm on the phone with Charles Eisenstein. And uh, the way our our conversation started before this introduction was I was laughing and uh, I was saying I'm laughing with joy about being together. And, uh, And Charles said, well, we could just do that. We could just laugh for the whole time, and uh, and we thought that might be better than any any words or stories we could come up with. But uh, maybe I'll tell you a little bit for those who don't know this part of my joy. Charles is a speaker and writer, focusing on themes of human culture and identity. He is the author of several books. Most recently, Sacred Economics and the more beautiful word our hearts know is possible. His background includes degree in mathematics and philosophy from Yale, a decade in Taiwan as a translator and stints as a college instructor, a yoga teacher and a construction worker. He currently writes and speaks full time. He lives in Asheville, North Carolina, with his wife and four children. He can be reached through his website, charleseisenstein.net. Welcome, my friend. Hi, Joanna. So, shall we just, uh, shall we just uh, enjoy our time in silence and laughter? Um, I think we should have a conversation, actually. Okay, I'll, I'll take the I'll take the clue from you. Actually, you know, I'm very interested in everything you do, but I'm interested in this article called "Psychedelics and System Change," mm-hmm. and um, because uh, I personally uh, think that psychedelics are an extraordinary, useful. A tool to change the world we live in. And strangely enough, I'm going to jump to something that might surprise you. You just gave a seminar not long ago on masculinity. And I, I as a woman, have been living under, under the, uh, not patriotic, what's the word, paternalistic, no, the what's the real word? Patriarchal, I think. Pa- patriarchal, thank. Yes. Under patriarchal domination, and I think that uh, masculinity, the concept of masculinity, needs to change. So I wanted to find out what you found out about that in your own life, and through your exploring with others. It's it's hard for me to summarize it. I don't have. I've never condensed it down to bullet points. 
me, it's it's a really in progress exploration. And I started out, I started out the exploration even with everything on the table. Like even maybe there is no such thing as masculinity. Maybe it's just, or maybe it's just a cultural construct, and we are basically the same, just humans with slightly different plumbing. And anything beyond that is is culturally imposed onto it. That's kind of the postmodern view, and also current in a lot of feminist thinking. Uh, so I, you know, even that was on the table. Absolutely. But where I've come to is that I do think that there is more to masculinity and femininity than mere culture. I think that. Uh, biology, human biology, and culture both channel something archetypal and and beyond human. Just as all of the other characteristics of human beings are also channeled through us and take on their unique expression in a human way, but that doesn't mean that they're only inhuman. So, for example, intelligence, uh, anger, um, all, all of these things, you know, are in all beings in a unique way. And so the same is with masculinity and femininity. And I know that's like super general. I haven't said it. Um, I haven't said, yeah, here's what the new masculinity is. We all know what the mm -hmm. old masculinity was. And we've, many of us have discarded that or don't resonate with that. But what's the new masculinity? That, that, so the, I, I really have, um, at this point, I don't have a well-formed narrative that says, <clears throat> you know, here is what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sorry to disappoint you there. Yeah. I don't know. My answer is I don't know. But for instance, in yourself, Charles, do you do you see yourself as a masculine being and... Do you see yourself having uh, having ways of being masculine that that make you live a better life? Yeah, I, I do see myself as. Let me put it this way: masculinity is a useful lens sometimes to understand myself. Hmm. You know, I can understand myself as a human being. I can understand myself as a being, I can understand myself as a man. And understanding myself as a man is useful to me sometimes. And yeah, there's certain qualities, certain characteristics that I have that are not exclusive to men, but that somehow feel masculine to me. Like when I'm goal-oriented and linear and um, uh kind of enterprising and um, pushing, like forceful mm -hmm. and um, audacious, you know, those feel like part of my masculinity. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's... Assertive and, and which isn't to say that women can't be assertive. But you could also say, well, women need to develop their masculine side and be assertive. Or you could say that assertive 
assertiveness is non-gendered. I don't know. I, I don't even. I don't like to get caught up too much in gender identity and, and politics. It's a very deep rabbit hole. That's a rabbit hole, and but I totally agree with you because uh, I, I don't see myself as masculine or feminine, and except for the playful aspect for me of being feminine, which is I love the costumes of the feminine. Mm-hmm. I love the, uh, the 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 possibility to play with paint as well on your body. Uh, I love the seduction part that I'm, I'm aware is seduction and theater. So I, I, I love all the, all the theater aspects of being a woman, but I, I have never seen myself as masculine or feminine in my true soul or, uh, Maybe in my personality, but not in not in what I call my real being. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting subject in uh, in that way. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, psychedelics, if you will. And I'll go straight to the to the to the part that um, that fascinates me. Uh, I'm very grateful to um, Rick Doblin and uh, all of the people who are working on the medical aspect mm-hmm. of um, of the of of the benefits of psychedelics. But I'm also concerned that that were were overlooking, and then in a sense you mentioned that in your article, were overlooking the uh, the capacity for joy and ecstatic and beauty that's involved in the experience a lot of the time. What would you say about that? Yeah. You know, I think that, that those experiences are on a continuum with the medical therapeutic uses of psychedelics, because... Really, we're talking about, I mean, health, healing is, you could say, what it really means is a movement toward greater wholeness, toward integration of our full being. So that could look like uh, treating addiction or some kind of mental illness, which is what psychedelics have been used for uh, in many cases, or and, and to bring someone to normalcy, to a, a normal uh, mental health, but I think that we are becoming aware that normal mental health, what Freud called ordinary misery, mm-hmm. is not actually health. You know, the, the the norm in Western civilization is a very pale shadow of what we can really be as human beings. So psychedelics can help not only bring us to normalcy and to heal like big traumas and, and addiction and things like that, but they can also bring us past normalcy into um, an expanded uh, state of 
integration and, and joy and uh, awareness. So they have that potential. They're, so, so yeah, I don't. I, 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 this kind of compartmentalization where it's either a medical use or a recreational use, that is part of the problem. That that distinction is a false distinction. I think in the end, when you really scrutinize it, and and you know, usually it's used in the context of well, yeah, medicinal uses are okay. You know, medical marijuana is okay, but recreational. Like recreational is a term of disparagement when it's used in the context of right. of these plants and chemicals. Like recreation, that's a bad thing. You know, you're not supposed to have fun. But if you are using it for therapy, that's okay. So, like, is that the world we want? A world where fun is looked down on? Uh, that's not a healed world to me. That's right. I was going to say healthy compared to what? Right. Like, for instance, uh, in the past, a long time ago, not in this country, when I took uh, psychedelics and, uh, and I was still incredibly confused by my childhood and my upbringing, uh, I, I sometimes had very bad trips. Yeah. And as I, I actually got sober from alcohol from one MDMA session, uh, I found this place of normalcy, meaning I found this grace, this place of grace, exactly, and deep peace inside of myself. And uh, on MDMA, thirty-two years ago, and I thought, well, shit, this is where I want to be, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to be in that place. So um, so then I went to AA for 20 years, and I went to therapy, and uh, I became normal. But what I mean by normal is that I became aware of the world around me, and most of the time aware of it in joy and gratitude. So then the next time after... 16 years that I took a psychedelic outside this country, of course. I, it was a totally different world to me. It was, it was completely based on playfulness and mischievousness. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's, that's health, playfulness. Yeah. What do you think? The, the it's it's yeah it's health it's I mean all babies play children play animals play and it's only modern adult humans that don't really know how to play as well or have forgotten how uh, or maybe fitted in into the little corners of life and with good reason in a way it, the playfulness is incompatible with the most of the occupations that are available in this society. You have to be controlled and serious and obey the dictates of the organization 
and there's not a lot of room for spontaneity in many of the roles that we have available. So in a way, and this gets, gets to the theme of systems change, um, you could say that psychedelics bring us toward a place in which we're no longer effective functionaries of the system. Although, as I said in the article, you got to take that with a grain of salt, you know, because there's a lot of people, I just read a satirical piece on The Onion, mm-hmm. you know, about um, Silicon Valley CEOs going for their ayahuasca experience and having an experience of oneness or something and then going back to work again. So this compartmentalization can also be that we have a spiritual part of life where we, to invoke a caricature, put on our Grateful Dead t-shirt and smoke some weed, you know, or drop some acid or something like that. And then on Monday, go back to the office. And I would like to say that, well, I would like to say that that is not what actually happens. That, that, that compartmentalization can only be temporarily successful. Nonetheless, I certainly know a lot of people who, or have met a lot of people who do kind of fit that caricature of, a little bit, that stereotype. So it's not so simple as it seemed for that golden moment in the mid-60s. You know, it's not quite so simple as, wow, we just, got every, we just have to have everybody drop some acid and the whole world will change. There won't be war anymore. There won't be poverty anymore. We'll all take care of each other. We'll all, like it seemed that simple, but it isn't that simple mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because so many people who have done that, they continue to participate in the system of ecocide and exploitation. So something else has to happen for the promise of psychedelics to really manifest. Have you thought about what we could do for each other and with each other to make, uh, to, to, to foster, to support this experience to be an everyday experience? Um, Rather than a weekend experience or... Yeah. I took drugs when I was young and blah, 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 and that's it. Yeah. I think that it is an evolutionary tendency that it is something that we can do for each other. Because one reason why we have these stories, yeah, I took drugs when I was young and then I became an accountant, <laughs> is because there wasn't very much to receive you um, when you had that breakthrough, when you had that psychedelic experience, because that that place and the perceptions of that place, the understanding of, of the world that's in that place is so different from the reality, quote-unquote, that surrounds us normally, so disjointed and discontinuous from it that there's nothing to hold us in that place. There's nothing to reinforce it. Because we're, we are not separate beings, you know. We are contained by and contain 
our environment and our you know our social environment and our physical environment. So after the psychedelic experience, <clears throat> all of these relationships that we have to the quote normal world pull us back into alignment with that world. So what we can do today, mm-hmm. that, that normal world that pulled us back is getting weaker. Mm. It's, it's seeming less and less real and less and less compelling. So we are now, enough people have taken steps away from the old story, the old reality, to be able to hold each other in at least part of that state that can come through psychedelics. We hold each other in a new reality or in a new story, in a new set of mm-hmm. perceptions. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a, you know, I think it's approaching critical mass in a way. Right now, at least on the surface, the old structures are still by far stronger, especially the economic structures. But the the field of, I mean, I call it the new story, you know, because it's basically a narrative that tells us what's real and who we are and how the world works. And that new story is gaining strength enough that in at least some kind of subcultures, people are really held in it. And, and things that seem insane in the world of separation and competition um, in these developing new story subcultures seem totally normal. You know, it seems totally normal not to have... Uh, a stable career in a large organization and to be accumulating retirement savings. I hear, you know, I know hundreds of people in Asheville who don't do anything like that. It's almost normal not to have a nine to five job. Like that, a nine to five job is abnormal in many of the subcultures that have been shaped in part by psychedelics. You um, you know, I just blew my nose because I'm crying, and now I'm I'm crying with relief and happiness to hear you say that. Because you go around a lot and you talk to a lot of people, and I have had such longing for this in my lifetime. If you like, I would say that uh, since I was um, a small child, but since I was 15 years old, well, actually, when I was 14 years old, I think it was 14, I heard that uh, I was in Lausanne, Switzerland, and I was going to the cinema by myself, and I saw a newspaper that said that um, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated and um, so, uh, yes, people, I'm crying, but I'm fine with it. I hope you are. And I saw that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And um, 
I immediately got this feeling that, yes, that very terrible thing had happened, but that in that moment, in that day, in the few hours after that, the whole world was together in consciousness. We were all grieving. And it was it was the first time that I had experienced that and I had experienced a longing being fulfilled that we were one, we were people of the world, we were one entity sharing an experience. So I ran back to, I went to a hotel that I knew and they had a telex machine and I ran up in my enthusiasm, I ran up to... um, to the woman who was operating the telex machine, people who are, are young won't know it's a machine that was like a fax, but way before that was used by newspaper organizations and, uh, and, and financial institutions. And I asked the woman who was operating the telex machine if she would send an, if she would send a telex to all the people of the world saying how incredibly sad it was that President Kennedy died, but how beautiful it was that at that moment we were one heart. And so I was 14, and now you say to me that you feel that this one heart is spreading and that you know that. And so it fulfills my longing because this is the more beautiful world I know is possible. Yeah. I do think it's unstoppably growing. It's still under the surface. If you look at geopolitics, the trade treaties, the mines, the fishing trawlers, I mean, all this stuff. On the surface, things are continuing to get worse. Mm -hmm. But that surface is like a thinning shell. And the the deep ideologies, the deep stories, mythologies that drive that process are really hollowing out. People don't believe in the whole project of civilization quite as much as they used to. (laughs) I love that, the project of civilization. Yeah, to become the lords and masters of the planet. The universe, yeah. To, you know, turn Earth into a gigantic parking lot with bubble cities and all that. Right. To finally be in control of everything and to bring order to the galaxy, as Darth Vader put it. Like, we're not, we're not really resonating with that so much anymore. People don't put their heart and soul into that the way that they used to in the, you know, early 20th century. And I want to highlight what you said because it created such a beautiful image in my mind. You said the shell is thinning. And when you said the shell is thinning, I saw the whole planet as an egg. Mm-hmm. And and when the shell cracks, I saw this amazing heart emerging, and the heart is one heart. The shell is now so thin that you, know, you can already see the cracks 
you can already see the cracks forming and light shining through them. And sometimes if you catch a glimpse of what the future will be, people are you know, creating such beautiful things already, different kinds of social forms, different kinds of relationships, different agricultural practices. I mean, pretty much everything that we call holistic or alternative is the light of the future shining through the cracks of the present structures. You know, I, I, you and I have known each other for five years now, six years, and um, I was feeling what it is that gives me joy when I, when I see you or I hear your voice. It's, it's because from, from the very moment we met, we allow each other the freedom to love each other. And and it's not boxed in any, it's not a kind of love. It's just a freedom to love each other. And and I feel what you're saying is more and more people are, are being freed into the freedom to love each other. Directly. Yeah. You know, just like that. Just because we can. <laughs> back to the Kennedy assassination I feel like that was and I'm not the only one who feels this I think many people understand this and, and, and at the time understood it subconsciously that it was a truly um, world changing event you know and, and like it's hard to say rationally, how it changed the world. Um, you know, I guess from a dispassionate political perspective, you could say, well, you know, it didn't really make that much difference. You know, the one president is dead, somebody else comes in and enacts more or less the same policies, and the forces of global capitalism don't really care who's president. And like, it doesn't seem like on a political level that it could really have changed that much. And some people say, well, Kennedy was wanting to pull out of Vietnam and was, you know, taking on the military-industrial complex. And I think there might be some truth to those things. But on some psychic level, this assassination collapsed the story. And it kind of ended this, or it was a, a landmark in the disintegration of the story of onward and upward and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Because even though the official verdict was that it was a, you know, crazed lone gunman, pretty much everybody knows that there was more to it than that. That even if they don't want to admit it consciously, that some kind of dark underbelly was erupting to the surface in that assassination. I talked to my dad about it once, you know? I was like, Dad, why don't you believe that it was a conspiracy? I mean, because he was greatly impacted by this event, uh -huh. hugely impacted. You know, he was born in 1940. And I laid out just some of the more compelling points that 
indicate that it was a conspiracy. And he said, you know, you might be right, but I just don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if that's true, then what's true? If, 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 if you accept that, then your whole construction, if you're a mainstream person, you know, your whole construction of what is legitimate in this world and what isn't, what is working and what's not, and just how the world works, it falls apart. And I think that whether or not people were ready to admit that consciously, it wormed its way into our unconscious and dislodged us from wholehearted belief in the world of normal. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, people felt betrayed, you know, people felt, felt this existential panic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was way out of proportion to the visible political consequences. I wasn't alive then, but that's, that's, that's the, the sense I get about it. I I want to add to that that um, I also feel that it was coming out of the world of the the madmen of the fifties, the wars of the forties uh, and thirties. It also those who were alive, of which I was one. I was born in forty six. Um, it. It woke us up to grief. It woke woke us up to common grief, which uh, I think is one of the things that really cracks the egg, cracks the surface of the egg. It is not until I was able to feel deep grief uh, as well as Playfulness and joy and those those things came together. I think they came together within me. The possibility to feel deep grief and deep playfulness. So it, it's not until grief cracked the egg. So I think a shared world grief happened at that moment. Yeah, and cracked the spell in some way. Cracked the spell. Of the madmen. And, uh, and interestingly, even people who had no reason to feel grief felt grief. You know, like people who were not involved much in American politics, right. people who may have been Republicans and didn't even vote for him. You know, there was something, something about it that was... It was like an archetypal event, you know, it had reverberations in the world of archetypes that are common to everybody. Now, coming back to the matter of um, mind-changing, heart-changing medicines, um, Jose read the other day that 32 million people, as of 2010, there was a statistic, and it's a government statistic, so uh, it's probably low, in my view, that 32 million people had used psychedelics and cannabis, or just psychedelics? Just psychedelics. Just psychedelics, yeah. Yes. So my question is, 
you, you say in your article that, that the powers that be are afraid that psychedelics will destroy society. Have 32 million people who used psychedelics destroyed society? Yeah. I mean, that's what the article was about. I was talking about Alan Watts, and he, you know, he was saying this in the 60s, that psychedelics make people immune to the rewards and punishments that enforce conformity to the current society. And, and basically he was saying, yeah, this is going to change everything. And it's, I hope we had high hopes for that. <laughs> but it didn't happen or it didn't seem to happen but I think that again it's not something that happens overnight because the existing structures have so much inertia but what it does so these 32 million people even if they have nothing to receive them into the post-psychedelic world they and have in a sense no choice but to continue participating for example to continue you know, finding a job in which they can make money. And that job is likely to be something that contributes to the ongoing destruction of this planet. So they have, I won't say strictly no choice, but it's very often, um, very often it seems to them as they have no choice and they continue to participate. So, yeah, so even though there is nothing to receive us into the new, and we're kind of, by default, continuing to participate, all of us do. I mean, if you if you drive a car, if you yeah. shop at any any I was going to say any chain store, but it could be any store that pays rent into yeah. the system. I mean, anything you know, our, our participation is is built into the environment. So we have kind of no choice. We can't. Well, I mean, that's not strictly true. But generally speaking, we don't have much of a choice. Um, and but that, the way that the, but at least we're no longer wholeheartedly and enthusiastically participating in the old. We do it maybe out of necessity, out of feeling that there's no choice, out of a kind of resignation. But our full energy isn't behind it. And so we kind of, when we're in that state, kind of go through the motions. Going through the motions is not enough to perpetuate the machine. It's, huh. it's hollowing it out from the inside. It's robbing it of, on the subtle level of its psychic fuel. Because the entire world is ultimately built on stories. Stories are the primary reality upon which social and physical reality is scaffolded. And when the stories begin to degrade, when we just kind of don't believe in it anymore, then eventually the superstructures decay as well. Right now we have, so those 32 million people, maybe they're not aware of it all the time, but there's a little corner of their brain that's like, yeah, I just don't believe in this anymore, but I have to do it. They're already, they're already, They've already moved on in their consciousness, mm -hmm. but the systems haven't moved on yet. And that is not a permanent state. So the way in which Alan Watts was correct is that psychedelics 
begin eroding the current civilization from the inside. And this is why I, I see it as a thinning shell. The, 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 you know, glory, the, the, the level of story and mythology is disintegrating. It's rotting from the core. And what's left looks solid still, but it becomes very fragile. It's just like when, when communism fell. Yeah. Right up until the end. I mean, even a month before, it didn't look like the Berlin Wall was ever going to go away. Exactly. It seemed permanent. But the inner content of it, the, 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 the Soviet elites, they had stopped believing in Marxism since 1970. You know? Before mm-hmm. then, they believed wholeheartedly. Khrushchev said, we will bury you because our system is so superior. Look, Sputnik, you know, mm-hmm. we're moving ahead of you. We're superior to you. They fully believed in it. But by the 80s, the Soviet elites were full of cynicism. They were going through the motions. And that left their system very, very fragile. And it didn't take much for it to just fall apart, seemingly overnight. But it wasn't actually overnight. It was the result of decades of erosion from the inside, the erosion of its legitimacy mm-hmm. um, and its mythological, yeah, its mythic legitimacy. And so the same thing, and this is related to Kennedy again, you know, that was part of this erosion of the core of belief in our society, in our civilization. And yeah, I mean, it seems that the banks, the corporations, the surveillance state, the governments are more powerful than ever. The shell, just like it was in Russia in 1985, the shell is just as robust as it ever was. But that's an illusion. It won't take too much, I think. I mean, I think there's still actually, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, the, the hollowing out needs to continue for a while. And we can do what we can to accelerate that process by delegitimizing and puncturing and disrupting the prevailing story of normal, the, the story of fighting terror, the story of a war on crime, you know, all of these um, legitimizing constructs. We can do what we can, we can contribute to the hollowing out. As you say, there's less and less places being uh, being laid at the pla- at the table of normalcy. Right. Yeah, that's true. Even if you decide you're going to play by play the by the rules of the game and stay in the system, and even even if you do try your hardest to do that, you still might not get a place at that shrinking table. You also gave me. Um, a way to a way to be uh, kinder to myself because uh, often i think oh well uh, i take gasoline once a week so uh, what a, what kind of what kind of caring planetary caring person am i or sometimes i buy at a chain shop or i often buy at a chain yeah. shop <laughs> but You see, in general, uh, except if uh, I have a huge pimple on my face, 
um, in general, I'm I'm kind to the people around me. I connect with the people around me, and so maybe I buy gas, but I practice being in community and being close, and that sort of balances out, doesn't it? Yes. Well, I think we have to ask the question, why do we have an ecocidal system? Why do we have a system in which you have almost no choice but to buy things that were made thousands of miles away and to drive everywhere because there's no local commerce and no local community? And why, why is it like this? Why are we doing this? Part of the reason is our, our experience of being, our experience in this world of being separate, of living amongst strangers who don't care about you uh, in a dog-eat-dog world where every person is your competitor. That's what economics teaches, essentially. It says everybody's trying to get the best deal. So in other words, everybody would like to take advantage of you. And you have to protect yourself. Things like kindness and generosity and compassion are excluded from that <clears throat> from that account of reality. So, in in a way, you could say that any act of kindness or compassion or generosity is a political act mm-hmm. because it contradicts the stories that motivate. Um, our economy that motivate U.S. foreign policy. If, if, if your experience of life is that everyone's out to get you, then the war on terror seems very rational. And I believe that when people experience more community, more love, more compassion, more experiences of oneness, more confirmation of the truth that what you do to the other, you end up suffering yourself as well, or enjoying yourself as well, that we're not separate. The more experiences that people have that conform to that story, then the less motivated they're going to be to perpetrate the um, systems, the policies, the politics that we see as a problem. But those things are not the problem. Those are, the, those are symptoms. Climate change, that's a symptom. Um, yes. Sweatshop labor, that's a symptom. Global trade agreements, that's a symptom. Uh, strip mining, symptom. All of these things are symptoms. And if we work, work only at the level of symptom and say, well, the response to climate change is to think of some more clever way to power civilization. So we'll develop you know, uh, renewable energy resources, green energy, and more cleverly allocate our resources and manage things better. That's a symptomatic level of dealing with it. And even if we succeed in transitioning completely away from fossil fuels, the ecological degradation will continue if we, at bottom, still have the lived experience of separation. So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. you can just go and practice kindness and generosity mm-hmm. and that somehow excuses you from acting on the systems level and the political level. 
core. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to devalue that kind of invisible personal realm where it's one-on-one relationships as, well, that doesn't really matter because when, you know, the sea level rises 60 feet and we can't grow food anymore because of climate change, then none of that kindness makes a difference. But we have this... this um, understanding of causality that devalues <laughs> devalues many of the things that that I would call as um, I would call feminine. You know, mm-hmm. this is part of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. That the big mm-hmm. things, the big physical, visible, public, loud things, those are the things that matter. And the intimate, nurturing, humble things, those don't matter. That is part of the patriarchy too. Yeah. So. I think we need to not exclude direct action, political action, and things like that, but not to privilege it over the things that women have traditionally done on that level and the things that women have traditionally valued, the interpersonal. Like, that stuff is political, too, and in a way it's more deeply political because it changes the, the, the underground structure that holds up our system. To come back to the um, to the psychedelic, um, the answers that psychedelics, ayahuasca, whatever, outside this country have given me, is is more choice is, I mean, the first time I I experienced these things, um, I was 20 years old, and um, my choices were very, very limited, very limited. They were were limited within a, uh, within a a Descartian frame that is extremely limited. And uh, what these things and the relationships that I have experienced and sobriety have done for me is that they have they have widened and widened and widened my field of choice. And everything I feel that you're saying is born out of choice. Choice of story. The day I discovered that I could, I could choose my story. It was, it was, it was like being baptized. I mean, it was like being born, uh, being freed from soli- solitary confinement. So I, w- I want to say in our in our talk um, something I wanted to say before we started, but I stopped myself, and that is that. You know, a lot of people have made uh, analysis, uh, early analysis about the 60s and 70s and so on, said that uh, it was a failure and that uh, the experiment didn't work and so on and so forth. And lately I've been thinking because I turned 70 in January, I've been thinking it was crazy to want to make a create a 
a narrative about those times right afterwards or during or even 20 years later. I mean, it's all the composting that has happened for me since that makes me see what really happened. And the the deep, deep, deep feeling of experience, like Jimi Hendrix used to say, are you experienced? Well, no, I was not experienced when I was 20 or 30 or 40. But I can pretty much say now, yes, I am experienced. And I want to offer this experience to whoever is listening because it's precious. And one of the things that didn't couldn't happen for us when we were very young is that there was there was nobody who was experienced because it was uh, it was uh, we weren't in, even in touch with the uh, indigenous people who were always experienced. Yes. So I just want to offer this experience uh, yeah. in any way that it could be needed because it's here now. And that's why the sixties weren't a failure. The hippie movement wasn't a failure because. They're, they prepared the ground for what is happening today and what will happen in the future. We, the difference, you know, because this is a question I get sometimes when I speak of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible and changing the story and things like that. Usually some embittered old hippie in the audience raises his hand or her hand. Usually it's a man, though. <laughs> and says, yeah, we tried that in the 60s and it didn't work. What makes you so optimistic today? How, why do you expect it to be any different? And my answer is, it's going to be different because of you. Because we have your shoulders to stand on and you didn't have that. When people in the 60s started to uh, tune in, turn on and drop out, it was there was no context for it. It was completely right. crazy. Their parents had no reference point to understand it. And that's different today. It's, it, there's, it's not like this completely inexplicable, threatening, alien thing that's happening when your 20-year-old son wants to drop out of college and study permaculture or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it, it's not this bewildering nonsensical thing anymore. And that is because people, you know, their parents, even if they did, you know, yeah, I did drugs when I was young and then I became a lawyer. I mean, even if that's the case, the parents can still on some level understand and and not, uh, they might still be scared. They might still want their kid to finish college and go to grad school, but at least understandable on some level and 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 then of course there are the elders who never went back to become lawyers and accountants <laughs> who like you and what you're offering and who hold this space for others to step into so we have a huge speaking for my generation which I'm pretty old for my generation <laughs> but speaking for my generation um, we have a huge advantage over yours, and that advantage is you. Thank you. Thank you.
really all I'm <laughs> I'll just add to that like the next generation like my kids you know not only they have you yeah like not only am I not pressuring them to go into a traditional learning trajectory I'm kind of pressuring them the other way you know like you don't want to go to college do you oh <laughs> beautiful beautiful Exactly. You don't want to owe the system every drop of blood in your body. Yeah, and and go through the 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 BS of of these institutions. And the, I mean, my father was a professor, and every single year he, for thirty five years, complained about the the declining standards and the and it got worse every year and the bureaucratization and the commercialization, the corporate influence, the pretense, the, the um, emptiness of it all, the, the pretense. He said, everyone's playing, playing, let's pretend. The students pretend they're there for an actual education, but they just really want a degree so they can get a good job. The, and everyone else goes along with that pretense. And it's actually this basically, you know, corporate enterprise Anyway, yeah, so I don't push my kids into that. In fact, I mean, I suppose I would tolerate it if they wanted to. (laughs) Tolerance, tolerance, Charles. And, and, you know, then there's the criticism, well, I can only do that because, you know, I'm so privileged. Oh, Uh, yeah. But if I weren't privileged, then I would, you know, wouldn't have the luxury of, you know, telling my kids they didn't have to go to college. And, like... Yeah, maybe there's something to that, but I mean, come on, you know, it's not like I have, uh, I'm not like, it's not like I'm setting up a trust fund for them, you know, I have no savings whatsoever. I'm completely, right. not like, you know, they're going to magically, because they're, they're white, you know, get money given to them if they don't join the system and work. I mean, it's, it's not, <laughs> that, that's a very simplistic critique. Really, I think, like my, my son Jimmy, he's turning 20 soon, and he's at the Picard Mountain Eco Institute on a uh, three-month program there, learning about permaculture and yoga and nonviolent communication and, like, all these kind of things. Like, I think that's way better preparation for the future than... Uh, you know, sociology 101 and econometrics and whatever else you learn in college. <clears throat> that, that the university is preparing for an obsolete future. Right, right. <clears throat> but these are the skills. Like he spends a lot of time playing music, you know. I mean, that's going to be way more. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. In, uh, in my experience... Um, if you practice these values of um, reunion and uh, grief and love and joy and playfulness, life really, in my experience, really sends privilege off of you. You know, like, Sanding the varnish off of 
a piece of furniture. So in choosing those values, a lot of uh, a lot of the privilege sort of comes off. And or, or maybe the, the kind of entitlement around the privilege comes off. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I do think I'm very privileged. Yes, I and, see what you mean. Yeah, and, and I'm very happy to use that privilege to accomplish what's beautiful to me. So it's true. Like you know, um, if I'm hanging around a street corner, I'm not going to get arrested, and that's because I'm white. Yeah, that's true. You no, know, but there are places where if I were black, then I would get harassed by the police. Of course, that's, of course. You know, you could say that that's privilege. Um, of course. And, and there are many other ways. And I fully intend to use any means at my disposal to uh, create a world without undeserved privilege. Exactly. And um, at every moment... It is possible to learn something that is humbling and therefore helpful. Yeah. Well, Charles, I think we've we took a a beautiful walk in the woods here. Yes. Next time, yeah. Let's very soon uh, have another conversation, and I'll record you for my podcast. What? Ask all kinds of questions. Oh, what fun. I'm going to... Oh, I'm going to love that. So, thank you for your generosity, my friend. And uh, I need to say this on the air. I, I love you, Charles Eisenstein. Okay. Okay. Stay in touch. Yes, we'll do. All right. Thank you, Joanna. Bye. Bye bye.